Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar that originally aired on May 8, 2021. Harinder Singh and Manpreet Singh discuss lessons and guidance to the Sikh community on how to pursue advocacy, long-term strategies, and building coalitions via both positive and not-so-positive case studies from the Afghan Sikh crisis to the farmers' movement. Thank you all for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sikh Research Institute. My name is Jasleen Kaur. Today's event will be on Sikhs, stagecraft, and civil society, and this pertains to how Sikhs are a global community with a growing presence in the United States. The questions that will be tackled today are the following. To create influence, do we truly understand how the U.S. foreign policy is developed and implemented? With the Biden administration's approach to its foreign policy as it may affect Sikhs. Considering that 80% of the Sikhs live in India, primarily in the state of Punjab, what are the expectations of a U.S.-India relationship in the next few years in reference to democracy and human rights in the context of bilateral relations? This conversation will touch upon lessons and guidance to the Sikh community on how to pursue advocacy, long-term strategy, and building coalitions via both positive and not so positive case studies from the Afghan Sikh crisis to the farmers movement. We are very fortunate to have two thought leaders on this panel today. Uh, we have Harinder Singh, who I'm sure you all know, and we have Manpreet Singh, whose bio I'm sure you all, all, all have read, and I could go on about his long list of accomplishment for hours, but I'll pass the floor to Harinder Singh to take over the introduction. Uh, and greetings of the day, guys, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, before I get going on this, uh, Manpreet Singh Anand, as uh, his full name is, him and I were just chatting before we started, and he's like, uh, let's be very informal. So I'm going to just call him Manpreet or Manpreet Virji. He says, can I call you Virji? I said, of course. But, you know, the issue we're going to be discussing or a range of issues are quite serious and they have to do with a much larger sort of a sphere, which is a uh, mentioned in the title. Uh, when we are saying six, the word six, you know, what do we really mean by this? The word statecraft is there, the word civil society is there. All these have their own political theories. They have their own criticisms, but here we will be delving into how to look at at least from this lens, from a development lens of those who do want to understand where we stand uh, uh, in the world today. And so regardless of where we are in the world as six, what can we do in order to get there? So to uh, set this up right, uh, look, there are 30 million six in the world currently. And the last nation state for six ended in 1849, which was a Lahore Darbar under Maharaja Ranjit Singh which means for 172 years, we have, had, we have not had state-to-state -state diplomacy. So let that sink in. And then if you look at another 150 years have gone by, where we tried to do it through, for, with multiple states while under British India. But since 1947, it's been 74 years that the diplomacy was done by the Sikhs 
within the Indian state. And it's only in the last 37 years, especially after 1984, that the diaspora Sikhs are getting involved in these things. They are getting involved because now they're politicians uh, beyond India, in US, Canada, UK, Singapore, Malaysia, Kenya, the top 10 diasporas and many others as well. They're diplomats, they're entrepreneurs, they're part of the military, they're part of the academia, intelligentsia. Yet, even today, in 2021, 80% of the Sikh population still lives in India. And of that, almost all of it lives in the Indian state of Punjab. So when we are discussing this issue, what we are really looking into is that there is a Pentagon in America, there is a CIA in America, there's a commerce and trade representatives in America, and then there are state department reps who have to deal with democracy and human rights and things of that nature. Uh, even in current administration, if you have staffers uh, who have now become part of the administration, like Sabrina Singh in the current administration, or Dilip Singh, who is part of the Treasury, uh, or aspiring ones who are on the other side of the political parties, people like Harmeet Kortillo, you know, if there is a likelier public administration, she might become part of that. Or even a presidential candidates like uh, Nikki Haley, a.k.a. Namrata Randhawa. So this is not really about discussing which political party to align yourself with, what should we be doing as activists, what the NGO should be doing only. This is not a discussion on that. This is, a, this is the sick situation. In this sick situation, how do we make sense of what to do within America, at least, uh, when it comes to foreign policies between India and US and how it can affect six? And I'm, I fully realize COVID is on our, on our minds and there's a devastation in India going on. There is no oxygen, no beds, no ventilators. And the uh, University of Washington just produced a report which is saying there are probably already 650,000 deaths in India, which is three times the official estimate. Which by the way, in reference to US, they say in, in US reported deaths, they're about 1.5 times what they report. So every country does this for varieties of reason uh, the, the reportings are not there, but the Indian administration is not saying much about it. People on the ground who are supporting are saying maybe it's 20x of the official number. Well, there are many charities who are supplying things to India right now. Uh, you know, about 20 of them on my last count who are trying to do relief and aid work. But how many of them are really supplying to Punjab? Many of them are explicitly listed. They actually don't even operate in Punjab, which is where four-fifths of the six live. This is where the larger statecraft and civil society comes into play even in this COVID-19 situation. So beyond military and diplomacy, which is the part about statecraft, and beyond government and for-profit businesses, that's the part about civil society. We want to see where can, what can the Sikh Americans do? So in that context, I want to come to Manpreet Singh here, who has been part of the former White House administration. He's been part of the um, State Department, US State Department. He's been, he's now part of a nonprofit sector where he is helping find solutions in the real, in the reality of things. In the absence of philosophy and in the absence of what activists want, what governments want, still figuring out the statecraft business and civil society business for the six. So, uh, Manpreet Singh, uh, welcome to the forum and thank you so much for joining us. I know we've been in conversations for a long time about doing this and 
uh, I'm so grateful that uh, you finally agreed to do this. So thank you so much. Well, Vaigriji Kakasa, Vaigriji Fateh. Thank you so much, Virji, for that introduction and for setting the stage. And um, thank you for inviting me to this conversation. Uh, I think it's really great that uh, the Sikh Research Institute is holding this webinar, that it continues to try to improve the discourse around the world on issues that matter to Sikhs around the world. And so um, I'm honored to be a part of that, this conversation as a part of that larger discussion. So thank you. Well, uh, let's get started. But before we get into, uh, let's get to know you a little bit. So Manpreet, uh, <laughs> you reminded me, I had actually forgotten to let me be the first one to admit when we met, re-met about 10 years ago, actually six years ago, you reminded me we actually first met in Texas at a sick camp. So first, uh, can you share with the audience about yourself and how you got into this world of diplomacy? How, uh, uh, like I was, I was a kid in Kansas, maybe 10 years senior to you, and you are a sick kid from Texas, uh, whose father is an engineer and mother is a postal worker, and you end up working in the senior levels of US government. How does that happen? Well, certainly it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a, a long, you know, made up plan uh, for me. <laughs> I think when I was a kid growing up in Texas, um, you know, I was doing everything that every, you know, American kid does growing up, you know, enjoying time with friends and trying to do your best in school and, um, and not really thinking about the future as much. But, um, you know, you mentioned the, the sick, the sick camps, you know, nowadays, the, the sick camps around North America uh, are ubiquitous. And there are so many opportunities for young sick kids to get involved. Um, but when I was growing up, you know, the, at least where I was, uh, it was really these summer camps that were a week or two weeks long, where you got to uh, interact with other people who look like you, and who were facing some of the same issues as you. Uh, you know, in the town that I grew up, there were only two of us that were, you know, Patka boys growing up uh, in the entire town. And so, you know, it, we've come a long way as a community, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned the, the power of the diaspora. Listen, my own personal story, you know, this work, you know, even though my, my mom, she's now retired, but she was a U.S. Postal Service worker, Um you know, she never pressured me uh, to get into any particular career. She always encouraged me to do the best I could possibly do, no matter what I chose. Um, but she did have a master's or she does have a master's in political science. And I guess part of that seeped into my own psyche and thinking while growing up. Um, and my father was an engineer. He, like so many, uh, <laughs> so many fathers of that generation, really wanted me to be a doctor. Um and uh, and I was in more of a rebellious state, uh, so I rebelled and became an engineer. And it shows you how much of a rebel I actually am, to be honest. Um, but but listen, it was you know the I really didn't get a sense of what my path would be and and where I thought I could add value and add some contributions until gaining some life experience. And um, you know, one thing that I did take away from those sick camps. Um, was uh, there were two notions that really stuck in my head uh, from, from the teachings of Guru Nanak. Uh, one is the importance of seva, and the other is uh, kirtkarni. 
And especially on the latter, I, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I wanted to find a way to devote my life to be able to make other lives better, but not as something that I do on the side or on the weekends or when I have time, but rather as, as my own profession. And so it took me, to be honest, it took me some time to find that. Uh, but it, it is what led me to development work, foreign policy work, and ultimately public service. And I think there's a, there's a lesson in there for a lot of people who are interested in, in public service, that it is, it is quite a noble career. There's a lot of ways in which you can help the world. And there's not just one path. Um, it, there's not just one path. And I think, especially for folks of my generation, sick Americans, sick diaspora of my generation, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the sacrifices that our parents made to be able to give us various opportunities. And now we have the opportunity to choose a number of different paths. And public service is a, is a great one for those who are interested. Uh, but that's a bit about uh, how I got into this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think uh, when you were talking about being rebel, I think my rebelliousness also showed up by becoming an aerospace engineer. Uh, but I call that that was my previous life. I've been I've been born uh, as, you know, we discover our real vocations, you know, so eventually the real rebel rousing, if you can call it in, in some sense, uh, is when we end up being just an immigrant sons or daughters, right? Then we end up looking at other things. And, you know, since our, our conversation started with Sikhi and Sikh camp, this is where we met. Let me actually invoke that for a second in current scenario. Uh, uh, this morning when I saw the hukum from uh, Sri Amrasar Sahib Darbar Sahib's hukum, the Rahau line actually was saying, you know, that uh, without connecting with the Shabad, you know, the classical or the literal line is Bingur Peter, you know, that without actually offering, submitting, understanding, connecting with the wisdom, mar aya jaya. I mean, look, we're going to be dying. And we're going to be coming and going. So the dying is not just physical, although that devastation in front of us globally and more so in India right now, uh, that actually tells us that when you're standing on the pile of dead bodies, you invoke Guru Nanak Sahib. He actually said this literally, uh, the Shabbat, that I'm standing on Maspuri. He, that's the word he used, uh, the Shabbat, that I'm standing on the pile of dead bodies. But he says, when you are in that critical of a situation, the idea is not to respond with anger or cussing or whatever else we might be doing. There needs to be a pause. And he says, you know, the line is respond with gyan. Respond with what we might call deep knowledge or wisdom. And I think it's in that context I, and I was listening to Ayanda Shabbat this morning because how do you keep sane while you're dealing with all sorts of things, uh, including the the current crisis in India, uh, whatever we may say about administrations, there are other crises, including of distributions and people's fears and pains and the families. And uh, I was listening to a Shabbat this morning, this being a year of anniversary of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib. And he very clearly says that without identification with her, which is the her literally means the one, the one light or in another etymological sense, it means the one who removes your fears. He says, unless you identify with the remover of the fears, there's going to be more and more pains. So, you know, these are the paradigms of Sikhi. This is what 
ekovankar or one force or oneness ideas of paradigms are and when we are in the situation we are asked to act with wisdom we are asked to identify with the this oneness in the world um so i'm so glad that you brought that out initially uh, because that's what brought us together and we'll continue to build on it although today's focus will shift a little bit more towards um uh, more of your field so for the larger audience manpreet uh, you want to share anything on that regard or reflection on that before i move to no i i'm i'm really glad you're connecting those dots because i think sometimes we understand that implicitly but we don't um we don't acknowledge it explicitly um you know to I, you know i was discussing this topic recently a, a strain of this topic recently with some colleagues that so many folks have been under so much pressure and in, in the last year you know the pandemic of course and it produces all sorts of pressures some apparent some not so apparent mm-hmm. um but then you layer on top of that what's happening in the united states but frankly in many parts of the world when it comes to um uh uh racist uh attacks uh and rhetoric um anti-asian uh uh hate uh you know six are not immune to this as you well know um uh the diaspora feels this uh all the time um and in some cases it waxes and wanes but really it waxes and wanes only in public attention it doesn't necessarily wax and wane in people's lives who are living it um and now you have this this crisis in india which you've talked about and and i know we'll talk more about it in this conversation but now this is hitting uh not just kind of uh yes this is a global pandemic and how do we you know work together to address it it's hitting people's lives you know i i i don't i can't think of somebody in my own social circle you know who have connections to to people in india who hasn't been affected in one way or another who hasn't lost somebody that they know or know somebody close to them that's lost somebody that they know so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on on our community at the moment uh, on many communities and this is exactly the right time to get back to first principles and mm-hmm. and think about well what is the effect that we want to have on the world what are the guru's teachings how can we live by them so i think it's a good reminder virgin i'm glad that you brought it up wonderful it's a reminder for all of us and i think six at large are putting their discriminations aside and they are really you know when you said public service which is a subset of service and the service element of seva is coming out even within india in diaspora and other places as well as the new seva is of oxygen seva now the langar is of oxygen uh in the macro sense manpreet and i shared this with the audience earlier that we're going to we're going to stick to not prescriptive answers today it's a long form sort of a discussion because we want to really understand this because many of us including me we get very hurried sometimes as to why you know the government is not doing enough in this case american government when it comes to certain issues in india so manpreet can you describe to us how the a us foreign policy is actually developed and then based on your experience in the government how is it really implemented and please feel free to add any uh, or share rather any memorable moments or achievements from your time and uh, if you can also humor us with 
some perks of being a diplomat? Uh, is it is it as glamorous as it seems? Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll first start with your first question about you know how has U.S. foreign policy developed? It's you know I think people who don't work in this space tend to think that um, it's very top down. You know, whichever president happens to be in the Oval Office is making every decision, you know, uh, on every foreign policy issue, and then it just automatically gets implemented. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, certainly the role of a U.S. administration under a particular president has a has a has, has a very very significant and outsized impact on the foreign policy of the country. No doubt about that. Um, you know, the executive branch of the U.S. government is responsible for setting foreign policy objectives, for engaging with leaders around the world, for actually being in charge of implementing whatever policies are being put forward. But there are other actors that have, if not equal, certainly a very, very uh, instrumental role uh, in U.S. foreign policy making and implementation. You know, I spent some time um, in the U.S. Congress as well as a staffer on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And I can't uh, understate uh, the role that Congress has um, in all aspects of, of U.S. government, but also in foreign policy. Um, you know, the, the, they call it the power of the purse. Uh, you know, Congress is responsible for providing the funding that is necessary for the U.S. government to function. And because they have their hands on those purse strings, on the funding, on the budget, um, there's a lot of power that Congress and members of Congress and the congressional system has on implementation. Uh, everything from not just writing legislation, but also performing oversight. Um, and uh, in its truest sense, meant to reflect the will of the American people. Uh, through its representatives. So Congress has a huge role uh, as well. There's also, and I think this doesn't get stated enough, the role of private actors in foreign policy. Um, we tend to think of government having kind of all power, but that's not true. Um, it's not true really in any public policy issue and certainly not true in foreign policy either. Um, the role that the diaspora can have for various communities, including the Sikh community, the role that civil society actors can have, um, private companies, uh, local communities, all of these uh, private actors. And I use private as a very, you know, um, uh, kind of wide ranging term can have um, can 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 uh, can have a lot of influence uh, on policy, can advocate for various reforms, um, of course, have to work within the legal and regulatory framework that is out there, but there's a lot of uh, possibility there. I'll give you one example from uh, my time when I was uh, with the U.S. Agency for International Development under the Obama administration. You know, President Obama was planning a trip to, to India. Um, I was, you know, looking at a particular portion of that trip um, trying to find ways in which we could get uh, the diaspora community here in the United States more engaged 
in some of the, uh, the development areas that would be important for India's growth and prosperity um, in, a, in a partnership mode. And so, you know, this idea, which ended up becoming a viable idea where we actually helped to kind of pool resources from the diaspora community here in the United States that would go into these uh, community investment bonds that uh, could help to fund small and medium-sized enterprises in India focused on particular areas, you know, water and sanitation or health or women's empowerment, lots of different areas. You know, it took a lot of effort within the interagency of the government itself. You know, you needed to make sure that your own agency was on board. You wanted to make sure that there was budget for this. You wanted to make sure that um, the State Department, the White House felt like it was in line with broader administration goals. You needed to make sure you weren't running afoul of any any laws or regulations. Um, you needed to bring Congress on board to make sure that congressional uh, uh, member, uh, members of Congress felt like this was important and this would be reflective of kind of what uh, our overall goals are for our relationship. So there was a lot to do to be able to build these types of policies and eventually implement them. It's not all top down. It requires uh, a collective approach and bringing everybody on board. So I think there's, you know, uh, there's a lot more than meets the eye uh, when it comes to, to foreign policy in these ways. I'll just give another um, uh, quick example, and this is maybe uh, more personal in a way, uh, but might speak to your other question about kind of uh, memorable moments for me. Um, you know, when I was a, a, a staffer, uh, on the Hill um, in the uh, in Congress, um, I had the opportunity to travel uh, to India as a part of a larger congressional delegation led by uh, one of our more senior members of Congress at the time. And, um, uh, you know, I was a pretty young staffer. Uh, I was there to help support the, the trip, uh, provide any information that members of Congress may, may need, uh, be able to kind of, you know, prepare them on kind of the issues, the policy issues that would be discussed, that, that kind of role. Um, important role, but by no means a senior role. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the trip, we actually uh, had an opportunity to meet the prime minister at the time, uh, Manmohan Singh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. And at first, you know, it, was, it seemed like, you know, with all these protocol things, only the members of Congress would be able to go and no, no staffers would be allowed into the room. Uh, uh, and at the very last minute, uh, they actually allowed, uh, I think three of us, uh, staffers to join the meeting and, uh, and in the meeting, uh, you know, all the talking points that I had drafted, uh, for, <laughs> for the members of Congress who were engaging with the prime minister were actually being, you know, said out loud. Um, uh, you know, there was a, a very frank and good exchange between the prime minister and the head of our delegation, um, and in a, a very good good meeting overall uh, from a diplomatic sense. And then at the end, uh, you know, according to protocol, the prime minister, uh, you know, walked all of the members out, shook everybody's hand, and then went on to shook all of us staffers' hands. And when he came to me, uh, you know, he he put his hand on my shoulder, and he gave me this look. And it really wasn't more than an instant 
but it was this look of almost uh, almost pride, almost pride that even in our community, uh, we could have you know people who looked like both of us on opposite sides of a diplomatic engagement, not opposing sides, just opposite sides. Um, and I think it was a moment. It was just a moment, but it was one of the more defining moments of my career uh, because it helped me to recognize a couple of things. One, how privileged I was uh, uh, to be in that conversation, to be in that room, to be able to hear from that, um, uh, and how I needed to use that privilege for good. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it made me realize that I had a lot more on my shoulders than, than just me, that I was representing my country, absolutely, the United States, but I was also representing a community, um, a com, and a very different Sikh American generation. And, and that has stayed with me as I've moved throughout uh, you know, various roles, both in and out of government. Uh, so, you know, these are the moments that I think help you recognize that, um, you know, we are, uh, we are a, a community that, yes, has ma many challenges, but we also have many opportunities. And um, you want to try to take advantage of those opportunities uh, as much as possible. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, one of the things you just said, and I want to sort of comment on that before I ask you the next question, that we are on the opposite side, not necessarily opposing sides. And this is very important differentiation. Sometimes they might be opposing sides, but it is okay to be on the opposite sides within the country and outside the country, like in this case, international affairs. And I'm thinking, from Guru Nanak period onwards, you know, his travels took him from Saudi Arabia to Sri Lanka. And within the Sikh empire, when it started from Bandha Singh Wadhar period, we have had where we had to figure out how to deal with the Afghans and the Mughals and the Rajasthani kings and mediating as, as Guru Tegh Bahadur did with the uh, uh, king which sided with the Aurangzeb and the king which did it. So we have had those relationships earlier where we have been part of uh, opposite sides. And sometimes they were opposing sides as well, but not every time. And it's a good reminder that, look, you know, let's not create these, because I'm seeing a rise of what I call the, you know, within this caste system, which is not just Indian thing, it's very much an American thing as well. And the new Jim Crow laws, as we are seeing everywhere in America. But six are also developing this new untouchable caste which I, you know, I've talked to people within India about and some people in the diaspora as well, that those who are trying to figure out pragmatic solutions with the opposing sides. So let's not throw them under the bus. That's the role which is needed in order to, among other roles, to figure out solutions, even if they both wear turban or don't wear turban, or even if have the sing or cause in their names, there is a role to be played. We have always had those roles and we must continue to play those roles. So thank you for sharing those two things. Getting a little bit specific to current administration, the Biden administration, and in India, you have Modi administration. Uh, uh, you know, as you know, that uh, Secretary Austin landed in India before Secretary Blinken did. So that's the reality currently. You know, we saw the Twitter diplomacy as it is now, uh, what the counterparts in India wrote and other parts. Uh, so given, uh, Manpreet, how do you think the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy could affect six? And this is specifically 
not specifically, I should say, the special emphasis I'm putting this uh, right now more because for last several months, people in the diaspora, including in America, have been very concerned about this Punjabi Sikh element, not just Sikh element, which had to do with the farmers as well. So I just want to emphasize that, but it's still a broader question, but specific to two administrations. What is the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy where it will affect Sikhs and Punjabi Sikhs? Yeah, no, thank you for that, uh, Virjeet. Um, let, me, let me try to address that in a couple of different ways. First, I think it's important to understand President Biden's approach to foreign policy at large. Um, and this is one in which he has been both outspoken and uh, steadfast in talking about an approach towards foreign policy that will be based on human rights and democracy. Um, there, there are many reasons why, behind that. Uh, some of it, frankly, due to domestic issues here in the United States, uh, but much of it actually due to what we are seeing geopolitically around the world with um, authoritarian states and authoritarian-leaning actors in otherwise democratic states um, uh, uh, taking even more emboldened steps uh, which, which really does threaten democracy around the world. So it's important to understand that Biden's approach to foreign policy, as he stated, will be based on human rights and democracy. Now, what does that actually mean? I think it means a few different things. One, I think it means he is looking to restore American leadership for democratic values. Um, recognizing that we've had our own issues in this country around uh, commitments to democracy, I think he wants to show the world that we remain committed to these values. So I think that's number one. Number two, we will see and we've already seen, and that's partly why uh, Secretary Austin did make uh, that first trip to India, but we will see this administration revitalize strategic relationships. Now, strategic relationships, not just with treaty allies of the United States, but also strategic partners of the United States. Um, and here, I think there's a recognition uh, by this administration that the world doesn't always organize itself, right? Whether it's dealing with uh, a global pandemic or climate change or uh, international terrorism, uh, that, that there needs to be leadership um, and that the U.S. is comfortable and willing um, to again show leadership in these areas for the global public good. Um, and I think also to make sure that there are not vacuums left where more maligned actors uh, could fill those vacuums, as, as unfortunately we've seen in various examples. So I think that's another area that we... Uh, a premium placed on international collaboration, international cooperation to address these more global challenges. We've already started to see that. Um, uh, so, so that's number two. Number three, I think there will be an effort to rebuild um, 
the foreign policy foundation within the United States and the diplomatic core in particular. I can't tell you, and this is more of a kind of maybe inside the beltway conversation, inside DC kind of conversation, but I can't tell you how uh, how much the morale at the State Department and throughout the administration, how, how low that morale had sunk over the previous administration is not meant to be a partisan discussion, so I'm not going to go there, but that that is what I have heard um, and felt. And so I think there will be an opportunity to rebuild um, uh, that foreign policy foundation. And, and I'll get to this later, but I think there are opportunities for six here. Um, and then finally, I think there will be a huge focus, as we've seen actually, on recreating economic opportunities for Americans, but also for others through more inclusive and pro-poor policies. And so I think here it's not just the kind of the Build Back Better agenda that's focused on a number of different things, but there's a recognition that inequality is one of the single biggest drivers uh, uh, of challenges in our own society. Um, and, and that this foments some of the, 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 the racial divisions uh, that we see as well, and some of the anti-Asian bias and other things that we've seen. So I think there'll be a big focus on making sure that we have a more inclusive economic growth um, uh, strategy going forward. So it's important to just put that in context of kind of where, where I think the Biden administration is going to focus its foreign policy. Now, what does this mean for six? I think there are a couple of things. So one is, I, I think there are actually uh, opportunities for sick Americans to actually be a part of the solution, as you mentioned, be a part of government, be a part of those organizations to actually help to influence, design, develop, and implement some of these policies. Um, you know, in government, we often say policy is people. And what we mean by that is that, as I mentioned before, so much policy is ground up. It's not just all coming from the Oval Office. And so you have to put the right people in the right places at the right time to be able to even produce particular policy options for leadership to decide upon. And we've actually seen this reflected in some in the appointments already by this administration. I think it's probably the most diverse cabinet we've seen in history. Um, the inclusion of women is welcome, long overdue. Um, I'm very glad to see um, how many women are in cabinet and other leadership positions throughout this administration. Uh, you know, even the National Security Advisor uh, uh, for President Biden has talked about uh, broadening the definition of national security expertise so that they bring in people based on not just what their pedigree is, what schools they went to, but where they come from, what they look like, how much gender diversity is there. I think there's a recognition that by bringing people into government who come from different backgrounds, that they bring their perspectives, their experience, their historical knowledge into policymaking, which is better for the country. And this is where I think six can play more of a role. You mentioned a couple of names. Uh, earlier in this webinar of sick Americans who are in, in government or those who are aspiring to be. 
I'm pleased to see there's a there's another sick American in a role that I used to occupy at, at USAID in the Obama administration. I think there's a lot more that could be done there um, because people is policy. People is policy. Um, um, and then finally, I think there is more work to do on on raising awareness of the plight of of six around the world. Um, you know, you and I have had uh, conversations in the past about the plight of Afghan six, for example, which frankly, given the announcements of troop withdrawals in recent weeks, um, you know, only makes that even more important. Um, but these are the areas where I think there is more work we could be doing on raising awareness about what six around the world are facing, um, the circumstances they're in, and what policy options might be possible, especially from this administration, to help address some of those challenges. So those are the, some of the things that I think, uh, Virgie, are important to think about um, as we move forward with this administration. Sure. So, you know, so I understand this people part. People uh, make policy, and if there are more representatives of the people, in this case, sick representation, you will get some sick angles. But, and I, I, I see a value in it, and there are more people. In fact, you mentioned that even, uh, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll share the name. The Leap Singh is there. He is the deputy at NSA right now, and he comes from Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So, we, Definitely see how even in the security world, how the economic world is playing a role, perhaps more from a geopolitical angle or even from a security angle. And he's probably the highest serving Sikh American right now in the current administration. But I want to come back a little bit to, so yes, full recognition that more second generation will be playing a role. They need to be making public service part of it so there can be those conversations. But how to even have that conversation with those who are there or currently, what is Biden administration's outlook towards India? Because uh, globalization, I mean, the global sick issues are important, like Afghan sick. But as I mentioned, you know, 80% of the sick still live in India and 95% of them live in Punjab. And those issues though highlighted by non-state actors, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that a non-private sector, non-private business sector is equally important. So human rights organizations have done that. Some even corporate sectors have brought out certain issues. But those, what is Biden administration's outlook towards, or is there any towards six? So so let me take uh, those questions in turn. Um, so, you know, in terms of the the relationship towards India, I mean, as I mentioned before, I think there there is going to be a premium placed on on making sure that there are uh, strong relationships with like minded democracies um, across the world, but in particular in Asia, um, uh, for a number of different reasons, and in particular with India. I think that will be something that is emphasized by the Biden administration. Um, at the same time, they've stated that human rights and democracy will be the foundation of their foreign policy. So this is a, uh, this is a good example of where we're going to see U.S. interests and U.S. values. Mm -hmm. And do they align or do they not? And, you know, I found in my own experience that U.S. foreign policy is most sustainable 
when its interests and its values actually align. And, and my hope is that this will inform how the Biden administration approaches its bilateral relations with India as well. Listen, we're only, what is it, um, three and a half months into the Biden administration. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not ready to give a report card, <laughs> nor is that my role. Um, I think they're doing a lot of great things. Um, but I think this is what's to watch out for, Virji, is, is, you know, the how do the interests and the values align, uh, especially with its engagement with India. And and we have seen, and, and, and listen, I, I want to approach this uh, from a from a candid perspective, you know, both the United States and India have experienced some backsliding when it comes to protecting and promoting those values in recent years. So there's a lot of work to do all around, and and we have to approach these issues from a place of humility, mm-hmm. at the same time as approaching it from a place of conviction. You know, we have to be steadfast in our commitments to democracy and dignity for all. We have to recognize that not any one leader of a country, whether it's President Trump or Prime Minister Modi, that 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 doesn't define a country. But at the same time, we can't uh, turn a blind eye when those values are being trampled, when, um, you know, that, you know, institutions of democracy are being gutted or when democratic norms or or rights of individuals are being trampled. So all of that is is part of the conversation. One of the things that one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope is that, you know, we and it doesn't get talked about enough, is that, you know, the U.S. India relationship is actually quite multidimensional. Uh, you know, uh, we talk a lot about the leaders and the chemistry of the leaders and did so-and-so hug whom, and, you know, that's all kind of the show, right? But in reality, we have huge and growing economic relationship uh, between the two countries, um, you know, from a, from a kind of cultural or ethos level, you know, both countries are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual societies, um, both, you know, have this underlying commitment to democratic values and embedded in the country's constitutions, but the cultures as well. Um, as you noted at the very outset, I mean, the U.S. has one of the largest Indian diaspora communities in the world, which in my mind actually provides perhaps the strongest ballast, you know, for the relationship. I talked about this a lot when I was at the State Department. And just look at even the response to um uh, to COVID uh, and the latest COVID crisis in India, um, uh, I think it did take a few days uh, for uh, the U.S. to galvanize into action uh, in a way that was responsive to the needs in India. But since then, oh my goodness, um, I mean, we have seen such an outpouring of support from the diaspora, from civil society, from the business sector, and from government. Um, and this is not happening just because there's a strategic relationship, right? Or that Secretary Austin visited India. This is because there are real life connections between Indian Americans and their family members and friends and others in India that deserves a response. And so um, there is more work to be done for sure, uh, undoubtedly. 
but I think uh, there is a strong foundation that we can continue to build on. And I think the Biden administration recognizes that and plans to do so. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, just a reminder to the audience that uh, we'll be opening up Q&A session soon. I have a couple of more questions for Manpreet, and then uh, we'll get into your questions as well. Manpreet, uh, building up on what you were saying currently, you know, uh, uh, agree with the foundational stuff. Agree with the Indo sort of Indian and uh, American connections through diaspora and the governments. But I still am, and I'm going to just leave this thought and we can move on, that even in all this crisis, current crisis, and even previous uh, administrations, there hasn't been enough done to where 80% of the sex live. And I keep coming back to that. Like, there, we have to figure out, and maybe this is where the work is, how yeah. to make Punjab conversation more relevant. I mean, the current chief minister of Punjab, of Indian Punjab, Captain Amrinder Singh, who is... You know, this is what we call the the, the governor-president dynamics in America. In, in India, it's prime minister-chief minister dynamics. He has even said, can we get some oxygen? Because they're not getting oxygen. Why are you not letting us buy this from Pakistan? And Pakistan is offering to sell it. Diaspora is sending it, but it is not getting distributed to India because they are not landing in Amritsar. They're landing in Delhi. So there are some real-life concerns here which are well-founded as well, even if you forget the politics of it, even in humanitarian crisis. Um, so I just, I, I think, so I just wanted to mention that because this is where some of the Sikhs and some of the Punjabis, and, and this, by the way, is not a sentiment of diaspora. Uh, in the last week, you know, people like Dinesh Vora, uh, the Hindi columnist on numerologists, for example, they are saying this is really about the character of what India is going through. Sort of the conversation we were having pre-election in America. And now they're having this conversation in India. That this has nothing to do with somebody's religion. This has to do with what kind of a civil society India has become. Like, what are we really doing about these things? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and bringing in the Biden angle, and uh, maybe this is a foreshadowing. I mean, we just saw something about... Uh, Armenian genocide finally being recognized and acknowledged in America and how Turkey reacted to it. And I, I, I'm sure you're aware there are enough reports where people are asking, is India going the Turkey way? You know, and if it is, maybe that's, you know, other things can happen. It sometimes take much longer for administrations to figure it out. So Manpreet, what are, I know you, we can't give a report card. 130, 120 days is is not, uh, it's just a foreshadowing as to what can happen. Uh, but what are your expectations with respect to U.S.-India relations in the next few years? And let's call it next three years, three and a half years. Especially, again, I'm going to dwell more on uh, in issues which are important to six. How do the yeah. sick play into those relations? Uh, and, and we started to touch upon the COVID crisis. So I would like to make it more sick-centric, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, what? Yeah. So listen, I think uh, there are a few things to keep in mind here. One is, and I, I started to allude to it, but I probably didn't do a good enough job of uh, explaining it more fully. There are going to be um, multiple uh, objectives when it comes to US, the U.S. relationship with India. There's going to be an objective that is strategic in nature that recognizes 
uh, India's role and power in the world, uh, the capacity of India to be able to positively contribute to global challenges, right? Whether it's the pandemic or climate change or whatever else it might be. At the same time, because President Biden has talked about human rights and democracy being uh, at the foundation of its foreign policy, India's own status when it comes to those issues can't be ignored, can't be ignored. Neither can it be ignored, frankly, within ourselves, which is why I said it needs to be approached from a place of humility and conviction at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what that means for the U.S.-India relationship and specifically for six is that there's a lot of work to be done, frankly, Virji. We're entering a new phase, right? Um, you know, it used to be decades ago, you know, India's involvement with the non-aligned movement and foreign policy towards India was kind of seen as uh, something very uh, distant and non-prioritized, frankly, from the U.S. perspective. Then the last couple of decades, there's a recognition that because of India's economic power, because of the diaspora, because uh, of its opening, uh, <laughs> though not as quickly as many would like, of its of economic opportunities, that there needs to be a, a, a stronger relationship there. And so there was a lot of effort done by Bush administration, by um, uh, Obama administration, and the counterparts, okay, on both sides, to be able to strengthen those relationships. Now we're hitting a point where nobody is nobody is saying that we should not have a strong or close relationship with India, at least within the kind of foreign policy uh, uh, community. And so the question is, well, what does that relationship look like? And how does that affect those communities like the Sikh community who do have major issues, right? Um, and that's all work to be done. That has not been done. But there are areas where uh, I think there's a role that uh, various communities can play in helping to shape those conversations. And we can talk about that. And I'm happy to talk about that. One, one last thing I'd just say is, um, you know, you've mentioned the, the farmers protest a couple of times. You know, this is this is an issue that um, that perhaps has not gotten the attention that it deserves here in the United States. But in a way, and I, I may be I may I may get some some uh, some angry tweets because of this. But in a way, I think it's it's not surprising. And 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 part of it is because I don't think as a community here in the United States, we've done the work to be able to build an, a level of awareness, let alone influence, to be able to inform the foreign policy community here about what this means, why it's important to look at, and how this plays into the larger relationship. So there's there's more work to be done there, uh, Virji. And, and one last thing on, on the farmers' protest. I think it, no matter what you think about the policies being debated, and I, I won't get into that, no matter what you think about the policy and, and whether it's it, it makes sense or it doesn't make sense uh, for India or for the people or for the farmers, what it shows is that there's been a breakdown in trust between policymakers and, and, and a large community. 
And, and so when civil society does not trust the government to pursue goals in its best interest, um, that's when you have these breakdowns. That's when you have these cleavages. Um, and so that's, this is the opportunity to try to find ways to try to rebuild trust. Um, it's easy to say, very hard to do. Uh, but, but in order for there to be any progress, that's that's what you have to uh, to look at. And just Liam Kaur is here, which means we need to start taking audience questions. So I'll wrap up uh, with the last questions with you. Uh, so, Manpreet, what you just mentioned is basically an acknowledgement for Sikh Americans that we have not really worked on the level of awareness to create that influence. So perhaps the level of awareness we have done is more about who Sikhs are versus what Sikh values are and how they need to be distributed, not just in America, but reconnect with the people in the homeland or in South Asia, uh, through India and somewhat through Pakistan. On that point, a little bit more, and that's my last question. I, this is the only how question then. You, you opened yourself to it, so I'm gonna ask that one now. <laughs> Which, what really is the work for Sikh Americans here to pursue these kind of advocacy goals, you know, what guidance will you provide them? Maybe a more to to create that influence, yeah. um, because we have that aspiration, right? Afghan yeah. Sikh crisis happened. We think they should do what Canada does, but although Canada was also struggling to do it, and they haven't done it yet, or yeah. they finally did a little bit of it. So yeah. all of a sudden, you know, we are asking the Biden administration. Some are asking congressmen, congresswomen, you know, their representatives, yeah. uh, and then there is. A farmers' protest situation. We are expecting statements uh, from the administration and again from Congress. But really, maybe those are what you are calling earlier in a different context. You said there is there is a show of things and there's an influence of things. So the only place where we can come up with influence currently is through what we are. Some of us are calling soft power, which means that we don't have any state power anywhere in the world. But we do have these soft powers, which means that's the influence of business, but influence of being part of the representation team or part of the lobbying efforts or part of the strategic missions, you know, those yeah. kind of soft influences. What explicit guidance you have for Sikh Americans to actually start venturing into creating influence? Yeah. No, it's a great question. And listen, I want to be clear, I'm not making any normative judgments about the Sikh American community and its ability to influence. Um, this is just uh, this is just an attempt to try to be helpful and based on my own experience and what's been effective and some areas that, that the community could look into. Um, so I think your question is a really important one, uh, Virgin. I, I would just, and I know we want to get to audience questions, so I'll, I'll quickly outline a few key elements from my perspective. So, you know, first is we have a very strong, uh, robust and active community at a local level, very active. You know, uh, every community that I've been a part, every Sikh community I've been a part of in the United States, you know, the local Gurdwaras are doing so much outreach, so much seva for the local community. It's time to uh, uh, leverage those relationships uh, into being able to raise issues and advocate for various policy outcomes with your local representatives, with your state representatives, with your national representatives. 
Um, and this is not partisan. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I'm not talking about any type of partisan. I, I'm just talking about use the systems of governance, right? Uh, uh, you have representatives who are meant to represent your communities. We have active communities who do a lot for the places that they live in, leverage that work. Secondly, I'd say um, invest in long-term relationships uh, with key stakeholders. And that's not just when you need something, <laughs> right? You know, um, this takes dogged work over years. Uh, it, it requires making sure you have an understanding of the network out there that are dealing with these kinds of policy issues and what, what they care about and why. Um, embed yourselves in those conversations. Uh, I think this is something that could be could be hugely impactful. Um, third, I'd say, you know, when it comes to the larger issues, we were talking about U.S.-India relations, um, find ways to link your objectives to broader U.S. foreign policy objectives or domestic priorities. You know, what are we trying to achieve as a community? How does that relate to what the United States is trying to do. How, do? how can this be in support of that? Make those connections explicit. I think that's really important to make sure we create kind of an aligned approach. Um, you have to find in this way, advocates and champions to be able to speak on your behalf as well. It can't only come from our community. Um, and then that leads into my last uh, 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 suggestion, which is, which is really around allyship. You know, how do you form coalitions with other organizations, whether they're civil society organizations or human rights groups, um, and importantly, especially for our community, amongst different SIC-oriented groups to be able to present a united front? I think that is also really important. There are examples, and we can talk about this further if you'd like, there are examples of how other diaspora communities have done this and have done it successfully or with mixed success. You know, I, I'm speaking in my personal capacity here, but I work with an organization that works with various diaspora communities around the world when it comes to democracy issues. We've done a lot with the Hong Kong diaspora, for example, um, and what they uh, have had to face um, in, in recent months. Uh, and how they've engaged on some of these similar tactics. So there are lessons to learn here uh, from other communities. Um, it's just about, uh, uh, about getting started uh, and doing the work. And there, there are, and again, there's not a normative judgment. There are really great organizations out there, uh, sick organizations that are already doing some of this work. Um, uh, it's just about becoming active. Great. Uh, thank you, Manpreet. I think I, I like the way you put it, and uh, it makes sense to me where we have done a lot at the local Gurdwara levels and local organizational levels. And in the post 9-11 world, we did go after national level organizations who try to do multiple things. And perhaps uh, uh, we need to now start thinking strategically about uh, organization whose job is to do just this, you know, whether it is through lobbying or through those long-term relationships where the work is, you know, we need at least one and eventually two, three, uh, who are constantly working on creating those relationships and influences. Perhaps uh, some of the listeners and funders can think about when they think about creating long-term institutions, if you want influence, this is the one which we don't have, which is solely focused on that. Thank you, Manpreet. Uh, Jasleen, uh, uh, let's uh, have some questions from Manpreet from the audience.
Yes. Um, so we have a question from Amandeep, and uh, the, I'm going to direct the question at both of you. So what are the issues dear to six, which we can get behind? Well, I, you're not going to like my answer because uh, I'm going to push it back to all of you. <laughs> you know, I think one of the issues, and, and it actually um, maybe builds off what Virgi just said, you know, we have a very vibrant diaspora across the world, but from a governance standpoint, we don't necessarily have uh, any structures in place outside of Punjab uh, that offers opportunities, channels for people to be able to raise issues that they think are important for the Sikh community. And so this isn't a question I, you know, I could give you my opinion, but it's just one person's opinion. That's, that's not really how it should be done. You know, we should be able to have structures in place where these issues come up. Um, you know, I, I'm in the, um, I'm in the, the, the space of promoting democracy. So this, this is inherent to my way of thinking that uh, there needs to be more small D democratic ways in which um, issues can be surfaced, debated, and then acted upon. Um, and I think that requires different governance structures than, than what we have in place at the moment. Virji may have very different ideas of this. Well, I'm, I'm on the other side of that, where you're trying to convince people on the ground, those who are either because of the absence of the leadership or governance trying to do that, or are getting appointed or self-appointed to do that. And it's very hard. There is no governance. I'll fully agree with you. And we struggle with governance even in our local organizations. And then to talk about at a national level of governance structure, our work is definitely cut out globally on that, including in Punjab. There is no governance structure for us. And I, if we want to be serious about it, we can at least start with Missile America and try to do that. You're going to need three to five full-time people working on that for a few years to actually bring that together. But we know what's on people's minds. So Amandeep's question, uh, we know what's on our minds. I mean, right now, in, in last one year, you know, the farmer's movement has been on everyone's mind, whether you are sick or not. If you are from Punjab, from India, from sick background, yes, that's very much on mind. Now, COVID situation is mine. Uh, ideas of human right abuses in India have been on, on six mind and things of that nature. But what's in mind is what I what we are learning today is if you want to go beyond a personal effort, if you want uh, a collective effort which makes sense and which the governments at some point can become partners uh, because they understand what you have done is not a PR campaign for an individual organization, but something it is on behalf of the community, uh, uh, then there can be some structuring there and we need to align that with the values of the countries where we are creating those asks. I think that's very beautifully answered, yeah. Um, I think even following the train of thought of uh, the farmers' protests and human rights violations, uh, Tilvinder has a question. Um, how can we lobby world governments for our homeland? And I will direct the question towards Manpreet Singh. Well, there's a lot packed into that very short question. Uh, some assumptions and some uh, 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 
some pronouns who which which I don't know what which which you know who who are we describing as we in that question? Listen, I I think there is a I'm going to give an answer which will sound like a non-answer, so I'll apologize for that up front. But um, I think there is. Um, especially from the diaspora community. I think there's a lot of uh, interest in fighting for sick rights, for, for, um, for the protection of Sikhs who have been persecuted in various parts of the world. And um, all too often, um, you know, the solution that seems to be the simplest, but certainly is, isn't anything but, is for a homeland of some kind. I mean, this is not, we're not the only community that, you know, has voices along those lines um, that talks about that. Um, and so, you know, the, this is not something that I think uh, is an assumption that people can make that is unified across the entire Sikh community. I know that there are those who feel strongly about that, um, but there are also many who feel strongly against so this is why it's a non-answer to your question, but I think the question itself assumes a certain solidarity in that position that I, I actually don't think exists. Fair enough. All right. Um, we have a, another question from Inver Paul. Um, so how do the lessons of U.S. Sikhs translate to other Sikh diaspora, say in the U.K., where our advocacy is short-termist, fragmented, and partisan? Any shortcuts? Um, I'll, I'll begin by directing this question towards you, Manpreet Singh, and then we'll, we'll hear what Harinder Singh has to say. Yeah, listen, I think there are lessons to go all around. I, I don't necessarily think it's one way. Um, actually, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the Sikh communities in the UK and Canada um, that have been around, um, if not longer, have been uh, you know, a larger proportion of the population. Um, and uh, listen, our, our community is also diverse, right? Um, uh, Yes, I would imagine, though I haven't seen data on this, I would imagine that uh, in the United States, uh, most Sikh Americans lean in a particular partisan uh, direction, um, just because I would imagine it follows uh, closely some other uh, similar minority groups, but I don't have data to support that. And really, that's not necessarily uh, the, the, the most uh, important, as again, a small D Democrat, I'm also a big D Democrat, but as a small D Democrat, um, I think it's important for our community to have a diversity of views, to be able to advocate for issues that individuals feel is important to them. I, I don't necessarily see that as a drawback. Um, now, whether it's short-termist or fragmented, I, I, I'm not sure what, what's being referred to there, uh, but I do think that it's important that we distinguish between issues that are political issues that six frank or frankly any other community ought to have a voice on on how they feel like uh you know they should be governed versus those that are inherent to uh, us as six because of our identity and i think it is important to distinguish between those um and not feel like we have to create a monolith, if you will, 
on every policy issue. I don't know if that's what's being implied by that question. And if it's not, I apologize. But um, uh, I, I do think it's important to understand we're, we're a diverse community as well. That's very beautifully answered. Uh, what are your thoughts, Harinder Singh? Uh, look, I, I, I agree with Manpreet. And let me put it in a different perspective, though. Uh, we, we definitely, we have always been a diverse community. You know, 100 years ago, when I put it in perspective, when we, were, when we became a non-nation state and under the British, there were, if I may even break it down, among the active six who were pursuing their goals, this is really about pursuing which goal you are identifying with. When they were pursuing it, some were pursuing freedom for uh, like literally political freedom through access and some through allies. So, you know, there were people who worked with Japanese and the Germans, including from Indian National Army founded by General Mohan Singh, eventually headed by Subhash Chandra Bosch. Then there were people who joined the British. They served under the British <laughs> troops all over the globe, you know. Uh, when we talk about World War One and World War Two, six sacrifices. So that's the not just opposite side, but also opposing camps in this case, based on today's discussion earlier. And there was a third group which said, we don't want to work with either one of them because we don't think we can achieve the our articulated goal. So they fought independently. And that included the Babbarakalis, the Pagat Singhs, and Kartar Singhs Rabbas. So I think that's the point to be understood from if I understood the Inderpals and even earlier, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, Talwinder's question. I think the articulation of the goal, the consolidation of the goal, uh, and showing that it is a goal of a percentage of the community, and then working diligently on that goal is important, instead of saying all Sikhs believe this, all, all Sikh Americans believe this. That's where we get in trouble. Uh, we are very diverse politically, practice-wise, religiously, culturally. Economic disparity is very much in the sick world as well. Uh, we have our own share of racist, casteist, and sexist people. So uh, when we have political ideologies, which are uh, sometimes not just Democrat or Republican, or in case of Canada, NDP or conservatives or liberals, or in case of UK, you know, uh, the, the Tories versus the Labour uh, and etc. And just like in India, you know, you're seeing this in India. There are people who are in Congress, there are people who are Akalis, and there are people who are in DJP. And they've served in all administrations that they continue to. I think the point here is we all do recognize that we are not we are a diverse group and not a monolith. I, I don't I think we very well recognize that. What I want to go back to Manpreet's point earlier, but those who want to fight for a particular goal, do we know how to address this? Do we have a way of data providing some insights to pursue that goal with the actors you want to work with, including non-state and state actors? But a caution on the data part in American context. You know, Pew, Pew Research Center, I think it was a 2012 poll. Uh, they put out the numbers were 280,006. Our estimate at the time, including with Sick Coalition and my sort of understanding of visiting pretty much all major diaspora cities. I just looked at number of Gurdwaras, number of people who attended. My number was somewhere between 500,000 and 700,000. So be careful with the data as well. But data provides one basis to look at things. It is an essential basis. And also know that the data is not able to cover all elements. As we talk about in COVID era, it equally applies to sick numbers as well. 
You make some very valid points. Thank you for that answer. Um, we're going to take one last question, and this is from Kirpal. Uh, is there an effective advocacy and lobbying model for a non-state dis dispersed global community like the six? And I will direct this question towards Manpreet Singh. No, it's a great question. And uh, yes, there, there are some, some good models out there. I mean, you can look at the Tibetan community, right? The Tibetan community has not had their state in Tibet. There's a whole um, uh, 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 community in exile that lives out of uh, Dharamsala, where they have a central Tibetan administration and, um, and all of that. And what they've done in terms of advocacy uh, for the issues that they care about is a, is a worthwhile model uh, to look at. Um, you know, there not none of these are exact parallels, so I want to just give that caveat at the at the outset. But and I mentioned actually even the Hong Kongers before, which is again a different uh, situation. Uh, obviously, Hong Kongers were operating under this framework of uh, uh, you know one country, two systems, which has been completely violated by China in the last eighteen months. Um, and, and has rendered, you know, Hong Kongers in a way in a very different uh, idea of statehood than they had before. So there are different models out there that are, uh, are worth looking at. There are some common elements to what makes them effective, at least in terms of advocacy here in the United States. Uh, you know, getting bipartisan support is, is I think, a really important element of it. Uh, you know, it's really hard to find anything that is bipartisan in the United States at this moment in time, but there is uniform recognition and support for Hong Kongers and Tibetans. Uh, um, you know, some of that might be geopolitical with respect to China, but a lot of it is based on human rights, fundamental human rights. So there's that, you know, there's that kind of element. There's some of the things that I talked about before investing in long-term relationships. You know, the Tibetan community has invested in long-term relationships with various folks uh, here in the United States, um, and, and that's paid dividends. Um, you know, I mentioned before, linking kind of your issues to, to broader U.S. foreign policy objectives. I mean, listen, one of the reasons that there's so much support for Hong Kongers is because China's actions in the last 18 months have directly violated international treaty obligations, and the United States stands for upholding the rule of law and an international global, you know, order that is based on that. So there are ways to find common cause uh, with policymakers. Um, it, it takes some work, it takes some thoughtfulness, um, but it can be done. And there are some good models out there uh, to look at. Thank you, thank you for that answer. Um, and I guess this will conclude the Q&A portion of the webinar. Um, I would first like to thank both Harinder Singh and Munpreet Singh for leading this session. Your insight on the topic um, has given all of those watching so much to think about and has answered so many of our like hard pressing questions. So, so big thank you. Um, next, I would like to introduce the um, this year's Siddhik program. Uh, sorry.
Um, so SICTI will be hosting CIVIC 2021, a virtual leadership and development program for young adults seeking to increase their commitment um, towards the Sikh faith. Um, it will be held over two weeks, starting Sunday, July 22nd and going all the way till August 7th. Uh, please note that Civic is available for adults aged 18 to 40 years old, um, but seven year, 17 year olds will be considered as long as they've completed high school. Um, registration is available on our website at www.sikri.com. Um, and lastly, I hope you all tune in to our SICCast. This will, this will conclude uh, today's webinar. Uh, thank you all for attending and I hope you have a wonderful day. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.